Greetings, this is Dr. Chuck McGathy from Madison's First Baptist Church with the weekly podcast. This is a message entitled, You Can Choose, and I'll be preaching this on the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. The passage this day comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which I will read in just a little while. A couple of weeks ago, as I hurriedly journeyed to my mother's bedside, somehow I found a few moments for spiritual reflection. I wondered how I might describe to others the kind of faith, the nature of the belief my mother passed along to me. You see, there is a beautiful goodness to her life. It is not by accident. It did not just happen as a result of happy circumstances that came her way. No, I learned a long time ago that the positive, loving acceptance that so many see in Mama is a direct result of her choice. She has chosen to see God in such a way that her life, even with its ups and downs, has also been good and loving. As a young boy, I remember asking my mother about God. Even then, I wondered about His nature, even His existence. In short, I faced a critical choice that would make a profound impact upon my life. Now, I want you to know I am no different on this than almost anybody else. We all are faced with a choice in how we see God. May I suggest to you that how you see God affects everything about your life. Furthermore, I think there are basically five ways of seeing God. As we consider these five choices, five views of God, I hope you will agree with me that even though we can find all five perspectives in the Bible, that only one can be the correct view. I want to talk about all of them before I read the scripture again. I know a way you can remember the choices you have. Think about your hand. Unless you have a missing digit or two, then this will be an easy way to recall the five views of God from which you might select. Now, please bear in mind that everyone, everyone alive now and everyone who has ever lived has favored one of these five views and their choice has had a direct bearing upon their happiness and peace. Let me further insist that most of us have at one time or another entertained all five views. Nevertheless, and ultimately, we must choose the one view of God that will dominate our lives. Now look at your hand. Consider first your little finger. The first view of God is that the, and the Bible, uh, the first view of God that the Bible and we will acknowledge is described in this faith statement. There is no God. We must start there because it is important that we understand that doubting the existence of God is not a new thing in human history. I sometimes get the impression that folks think that atheism is some sort of new development, uh, not according to the Bible. In the Psalms, atheism is plainly acknowledged when it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now, I start with this view of God, this chosen view, so that we might understand a timeless truth. Denying God's existence is not confined to the hardened atheist who teaches or writes books. No, in fact, it is a view of God to which we are all susceptible. You see, one does not have to proclaim the non-existence of God to act as if there is no God. Even those who are on the surface religious may, in their hearts, still say there is no God. So whether it is pronounced or practical atheism, it is atheism all the same. And that 
is a choice human beings have considered for a long time. Now, there's much I could say to argue against this idea that there is no God, but right now let's limit it to this. Adopting this view of God must, if followed through to its conclusion, end in despair, loneliness, and above all, hopelessness. The next finger in view of God also leads to great pain. It too is often spoken of in Scripture because it is so frequently believed by human beings. This view explains itself this way. There is a God, but he's a cruel God. Do I need to express why this view of God is so common? We know all too well how this kind of thinking has come about. Whenever human beings have been faced with drought, disease, or disaster of any kind, they have raised an angry fist to heaven and shouted, Why, God? Throughout human history, entire religious systems have been developed around the idea that God is cruel and capricious. The best humanity can do is to appease him so that he will not harm them. I could give you numerous examples of this from Scripture, but let me confine it to one powerful picture. The view that God is cruel and arbitrary was the common belief in the time of Abraham. The cruel God would even demand that parents kill their own children in order to appease his bloodlust. When Abraham was inspired to go to the mountain with his only son, Isaac, and there sacrifice him to God, I think this was the view of God. That was very much upon its heart. But God, the real God, is not like that at all. Before Abraham could strike with the knife, God stopped him. He gave Abraham new information that he had not considered. His God did not need a sacrifice. He was going instead to provide the sacrifice. The followers of Jesus would refer to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our God, you see, is not a cruel God. Now let's consider yet another finger and another choice. This view believes God exists and he's not cruel, but he's not interested and not involved. Some will recognize that this view of God is also known as deism. Deism was a common view of God embraced by several of our nation's founding fathers, but the idea is far older than the 18th century. I think this was also the view expressed by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who when asked to decide the guilt or innocence of Jesus, responded, what is truth? You see, for Pontius, there was no real involvement by God in our lives and decision making. This view of God, though, is embraced by more than Pilate. Lots of people, even many people sitting in pews today, acknowledge God, but carry on as if he does not care one way or the other what they do. But I'm here today to tell you, That is not true. Seeing God as uninterested and uninvolved is an unhealthy and incorrect way to see God. There are just two fingers left. Now think about the index finger. This view of God, I believe, has become an increasing temptation for Christians in our day. Sadly, some among us have even chosen this view. It has led to depression in the church. According to the Bible, this phenomenon is nothing new. It also led to depression among the Hebrew people in exile. This view of God holds that he exists. God is not cruel and God is interested in us, but God is just too weak to address our deepest need. In other words, we are left without the comfort and help of his power. When the Jewish people were forcibly deported from their homeland into the kingdom of Babylon, it was for them extremely depressing. They were homesick, longing for the good old days. They were mocked by the Babylonians. 
They were told that their circumstances proved that their God was not as strong as the God of their captors. A psalmist captures the depression of the people, wondering if their God is just too weak. When he writes, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung up our harps upon the willows. So far, four fingers, four views of God. He does not exist. He is cruel. He is uninterested. He is powerless. Each of these, though, are wrong, and each of these the Bible argues against. Now the last finger, the unique one, the thumb, it describes God this way. God, the real God, is loving and powerful and has acted on behalf of his creation. The good news, the gospel is this. For God so loved the world that he sent a son. You see, this view believes that not only does God exist, but God is interested, powerful, and loving. Ultimately, we must all choose which God view we will embrace. This was, in essence, the same choice Moses laid out before his people. In this portion of Scripture, we will hear the words of God spoken through Moses, inviting us to consider our choices. Now for the Scripture. Today I am giving you a choice between good and evil, between life and death. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I give you today, if you love him, obey him and keep all his laws, then you will prosper and become a nation of many people. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are about to occupy. But if you disobey and refuse to listen and are led away to worship other gods, you will be destroyed. I warn you here and now, You will not live long in that land across the Jordan that you were about to occupy. I am now giving you the choice between life and death, between God's blessing and God's curse. And I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Choose life. Love the Lord your God. Obey him and be faithful to him. And then you and your descendants will live long in the land that he promised to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The book of Sirach, also known as Ecclesiasticus, is not considered part of the Protestant scriptures. There is a quote taken from the book of Sirach. The Protestants, though, determined to exclude all writings that occurred after the Jews completed their canon of scripture. Nevertheless, there are certain theological reflections contained in this writing that beautifully capture the thinking of some Jews just prior to the appearing of Christ. For this reason, I think it is interesting to hear from a Jew named Joshua ben Sirach. He echoes Moses when he writes, If you choose, you can keep the commandments. And to act faithfully is a matter of your own choice. He has placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. Before you, before each person are life and death, and whichever one chooses will be given. There it is again. It is the theme of choice repeated over and over again in the scripture and even through the commentary of Sirach. It is the powerful notion that we are given by God the opportunity to believe good things and make good decisions. Now let's return those to those dramatic words from Moses and think about what he said and also consider to whom he said choose life. The words recorded in the final section of the book of Deuteronomy represent a summation of all that Moses has tried to do with his people. It was, in a way, his benediction. Most of you know the backstory. The Hebrew people were held in the Egyptian slavery. Their lives, though predictable, were not free. 
Then God called Moses to return to the place from which he had escaped and challenged the highest authority in the land with the famous words, let my people go. Through a dramatic series of events, the Jews were delivered from their slavery. Soon, however, they find themselves wandering as a nomadic tribe through the arid wastelands that lie away from their intended destination, also called the Promised Land. During 40 years, a generation of wandering people are not idle, but being molded by God through his servant Moses into a unified nation. Part of that molding is the realization that they have been given by God freedom and the price of that freedom is that they must make good choices as individuals and as a religious community. No longer can they blame their circumstances. No longer can they blame the Pharaoh. No longer can they blame the idolatrous gods of the Egyptians for the good or evil that will befall their lives. Moses begins by calling both heaven and earth to be a witness to his words. I think that is significance. Both heaven and earth have their foundations constructed upon the facts of God. It is a truth deeply interwoven in our faith and in our scripture from the first words to the last that God has constructed the universe, including this world, to run on certain fixed principles. There is such a thing as truth and it matters. Here, Moses recognizes this for the children of Israel. He reminds them that it isn't just him spouting an opinion and calling it truth. No, in fact, this really is the truth of God, not only for the people of his day, but for the people of every day. We, like the Hebrews, must never forget that even when it becomes fashionable to believe that all truth is relative. In other words, Jesus, in other words, truth does not mean whatever we want it to mean. Neither are we at liberty to believe whatever we want to believe. That is not the way the world was constructed and that is not the way by which the world will be judged. Moses calls on both heaven and earth to witness what he is about to say to the people who are his family and who he loves most deeply. Moses goes into greater depth and puts forward this principle. First, there are two paths upon which we can tread. One path leads to curses and death, and the other path leads to blessings in life. And now here comes the most important part. We must choose which path we will tread. Moses does not stop there. He goes further to describe what choosing the proper path means. He helps them see that even though they are far from the end of their worldly journey, that their present decision to choose life will have meaningful and lasting results. He says, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Certainly Moses is speaking of more than simply physical life here. No doubt he's speaking about the quality of the life we possess. We all know from the experience of others or perhaps even our own experience that it is possible to be technically alive on the exterior and at the same time to be fully dead inside. Oh, how the soul aches for life and will not be satisfied with anything other than life. Yet by our own choices made usually over a long period of time, we can find ourselves as empty as seashells from which a life has departed. We could be described as people without hope, people without love, people without anything meaningful to do. But God does not desire that for us. What is even more is that he recognizes that when we find life, it's actually contagious. Others will catch it when they recognize our hope and our love and our purpose. Of course, they may at first question it. They may even call us names like Goody Two Shoes or Pollyanna. They might not even believe in God to the same degree we do. But in the final calculation, they secretly hope that we're right. 
They hope that there is purpose in life, that God does indeed love us and is with us no matter what we're facing. They hope they too can endure because of God's great grace. So if we choose life, our next question ought to be, what does that mean? What do I need to think? What do I need to do? To those questions, Moses provides a surprising answer. Now, I say surprising, but it really isn't that surprising. Still, I believe some will find it very surprising because they think of Moses primarily in terms of rules and regulations. When they think of Moses, they think of all the Jewish laws, and in particular, the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. But to understand Moses only in that limited light is an insufficient understanding of who this man really was. You see, behind all of the Mosaic rules and regulations underlay a deeper principle, a principle he brings out right here. Keep in mind that the word order here is essential and significant in his proclamation. This is what he told them they must do in order to choose life. They must first love God. Second, they must obey him. And finally, they must hold fast to him. One of the best things that ever happened to me took place in my first year of seminary. At Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I took an Old Testament course taught by Harry Hunt. Professor Hunt was a tremendous Baptist and tremendous scholar. He had a personal mission in life also, and he expressed it over and over again. He wanted us theological students who were bound to pastor Baptist pulpits to understand and embrace the truth of the Old Testament. He had his work cut out for him. Too many of his students had adopted the common bromides passed around by sloppy and unthinking individuals who believed they were representing the Bible but were in fact missing the point. To us, he addressed the issue directly. His point was this. God expresses his love for his people continually, and it is evidenced all through the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the very fact that this may be a surprising statement illustrates how important it is that I make it. Too often, the God of the Old Testament is mischaracterized as a broody, cranking misanthrope wanting to run playful children out of his front yard. This misinformation presses on. God's reputation, it seems, gets a much-needed makeover in the New Testament, so much so that it is not an uncommon thing for me to hear, Pastor, I like the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament seems like a terrible grouch. Well, as Dr. Hunt would insist, we need to confront that thinking. As the Apostle Paul put it, that sort of thinking might be the spiritual milk that some were raised on, but now's the time to move up to the meat and potatoes. And here's the actual truth. Hear me, please, as I teach you, as Dr. Hunt taught me. God's love is constantly demonstrated in the Hebrew scriptures. We just miss it because we don't know how to see it. Even among the restrictions of the, old, of the Ten Commandments, we need to remember how they began. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out from the land of slavery. God begins his rules for successful living by reminding his children of his great love for them and his desire that they live as slaves no longer. It was only through his hand that they were delivered and found a new freedom to choose a new way of living. Moses knew that kind of God, a God of love. And so he reminds the people one more time that they can count on God's love. How do you respond when you know someone loves you? I read a heart-wrenching story a few years back that both broke my heart while at the same time affirmed the power of love. It is a story of a 50-year-old Indian elephant who had been cruelly chained and forced over the course of his life to walk among tourists and beg for small donations. His many masters had controlled his behavior through beatings, physical deprivation, forcing him to eat trash to survive, and by using spikes called bull hooks to inflict great pain upon this animal. Then a change. 
A wildlife charity found out about the inhumane treatment of this animal. They determined to rescue the elephant Raja from his captors, but it was not easy. Government regulations and gangs of thugs had to be overcome in order to release Raja into the care. There was great concern that when the elephant was released that he would be so damaged, so scarred emotionally from his experience with cruel humans that he would never be able to trust a human being again. When at last he was freed and his spikes were removed, when at last he was treated to good food and allowed to play in a pond of water, when at last he finally experienced kind and good treatment, the elephant did something remarkable. He cried. I did not know that could happen. But it does. Elephants can cry. And Raja cried because he had been freed from his pain. But he also did something else. Raja finally trusted a human being. Please hear me now, even if you have heard nothing else. God loves you. He can and will deliver you from the cruelty and wickedness that ensnares you. He will, through his love, release you from the things that hold you in chains. Because of that, you can love him. And because of that, you can trust and obey him. Yet, there is one final piece of counsel that Moses leaves with his dear friends. He tells them to hold fast. The words hold fast have a special significance to sailors. It is, in fact, an often repeated reminder that even in the midst of the storm, we don't give up hope. We trust our training. We trust our ship. We trust our shipmates. And most of all, we trust our captain because we believe that he knows how to get us through whatever we're facing. The idea of holding fast becomes part of who you are. I remember well that moment when my son Michael left to go become an officer in the United States Navy. As he got into his car to drive away, my heart swelled with pride and love. I also knew that he was leaving one world to become part of another. He was entering a demanding environment that would call the very best from him. In coming days, he would have to deal not only with physical challenges, but with the emotional challenges that would cause him to question his commitment. He was going to go to be molded into a leader of men and women who would navigate our nation's warships through perilous waters. I could not go with him. He had to go through this on his own. And so as I looked him in the eye, perhaps choking back a tear or two, I spoke those words that have encouraged sailors throughout antiquity. Hold fast. Today, no matter what you are going through, hold fast. Hold fast to God's love and care for you, even in the midst of the storm, even when you can't stop crying, even when the darkness seems so overwhelming. Hold fast. Refuse to give up hope. Keep pressing on. Believe that our God will make a way because he loves you, because you are his child. No matter what you think of God, no matter how much you may question, I want you to know that he is here for you. Just as he was for the children of Israel as they beat the odds, as they made their way into a land of promise, so too he will guide you and be with you always. So love him and obey him to the best of your ability and always know that you are not alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we face great trials, transitions, and temptations, help us to remember that you are the one who has demonstrated your love to us. You have been for us all along, encouraging us, guiding us, forgiving us, and loving us until we find our way back to you. Now we ask that you help us to understand you and trust you, to love you and obey you in sincerity and truth. 
May the hope that you have instilled in us be embraced by others so that in our time of trials, we will know you will deliver us all. In the name of the captain of our souls, we pray. Amen.